Well, good morning, church. It is always a blessing to be together. Uh, before I begin to preach, I have something that I, I want to share with you as our church family. Uh, we found out on Wednesday that Lauren has breast cancer. Uh, and we have talked to, to lots of doctors since then, uh, and we know at this point that at the very least that's going to mean several months of chemotherapy and eventually a surgery. Uh, and because the effects of, of chemotherapy are something that you can see and that you're going to know about, we don't want you to, to find out indirectly. We want you to find out uh, straight from us. Uh, as you can imagine, it's been a long uh, past several days, I haven't been sleeping very well. Uh, I, I'm spiritually gifted at worry anyway, and when you add something this significant and real, uh, that goes into to overdrive. I do want to tell you a couple of things. This has not in any way shaken our trust in God and God's faithfulness. Uh, even though I can't sleep, it doesn't mean I'm not talking a lot. Uh, to God about all of this and, and trusting God with all of those concerns. The other thing I want to tell you is the last thing that Lauren wants to be is the center of attention. Uh, the last thing she wants is special treatment. That's what she keeps telling me the last few days. And we've struggled with whether or not to even talk about this this way. Uh, but I, I came to the point where I just felt like you just need to know that we're kind of limping. Uh, so, you know, my, my struggle at times is to seem distant. Uh, and I'm probably going to seem even more distant at times. And I need you to know it's not me. I mean, I'm sorry, it's not you. Um, it's me. Uh, and it's what we're going through. Uh, I, can I ask you something? We would love your support. We can't handle all your medical advice. Is that as clear as I can be? We're talking to a lot of really good doctors. We're doing everything we can uh, to, to make sure we're informed. And every cancer journey is different. Uh, there's a lot of specific personal things to everyone's cancer battle. Uh, and we, we want you, I'm asking you to be in prayer for Lauren. I, I'm going to pray in just a moment for her complete healing. And I want you to join us in praying for that. Uh, but there are constant medical advances. Uh, and everyone's experience with chemotherapy and surgery is different. And so what I'm nervous about for my own wife are well-intentioned stories that make her more concerned or more confused than we already feel. So we want your support. We're going to leave medical advice to the professionals. Uh, and that's probably true for everyone who's going through cancer. And so if I've never said that before, or you haven't heard that before, I think that's probably some pretty good advice to live, live by. Even though I just said don't give us advice. Anyway, uh, you know, I think, I think an important part of ministry is that regardless of what you're going through or struggling with, and, and Lauren and I, I, 
I'll never forget, you know, the, the Sunday that I decided that I was going to ask Lauren to, to marry me, I, uh, I preached on uh, love, and then at the end of that sermon, I proposed to her in front of a church, and I asked her to join me in a life of ministry in addition to joining me in marriage. And one of the things with a life of ministry is you live a life that's witnessed, and that's true with all of us, whether we realize it or not. But I think in ministry, you're choosing to say, even on our bad days, you can watch us. You, you can see us, and you can see what we're trying to do and how we're trying to, to get through this. Um, and so I'm not going to promise you that that's always going to be something that's perfect. I don't, I don't think we're uh, anywhere close to being perfect models for how to go through something. But we're not going to go through this privately because we're a part of a church family. You're our church family. And we're going to share this with you. Now, Lauren, Lauren wanted me to tell you, you know, this isn't going to be a weekly update before the sermon. <laughs> we know she's going to have to go through chemotherapy and we know she's going to have to have a surgery. That's what we know. Um, and that's what we need you to pray for God to work through and to, to give us strength through. Uh, beyond that, we don't have a bunch of answers. And so I, I know you may want to ask a bunch of questions. We don't have a bunch of answers. Um, but we want to go through this with you. Um, and we feel loved and supported. I want you to know that. We are so thankful already to be a part of this church family. Uh, and it just so happens that I'm preaching on the topic of love this, this morning. And it reminds me of that moment uh, when we were surrounded by a church family in, in early Texas. And some of you were actually there that day. Uh, and you remember the carols and the towels. And we we want to do life with, with church. Um, and so that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, I think Lauren would be horrified if she had to come to the middle of the room. So I'm not, I'm not going to do that to her. But would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you so much for your son, and we thank you for the ways that he is with us in the most difficult moments that we have to face. And, and not only are we thankful that he's with us, we're thankful that you give us each other. Uh, and so, God, I, I lift up my wife to you, uh, and I, I'm begging you, uh, to, to give her complete healing. And I know that as a family, we're going to have to, we're going to have a, a difficult season. Uh, and it's going to be hard. Uh, and God, we need, we need your help. And so I just pray that you would help us sense your nearness, that we would get to experience your healing power, and that we would continue to trust in your faithfulness. We believe you're good, and we know that in this life, we have to go through difficult times, but we still believe you're good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so my heart's not in this sermon, in case you're wondering, but I'm going to do my best. One of the things that, that Jesus uh, wants us to understand about ourselves, and he, he wants us 
to live into more and more is that when we try to use our relationships, when we try to use situations, when we try to use our accomplishments to keep propping up our sense of value and worth, we are making it more and more difficult for us to get to experience the unconditional love that God has for us and the fact that because God is the one who has created us from the very beginning before you or I do anything, there's a greatness inside of us that God has given us. And that has to then change, not not exactly what we do, but it certainly has to change why we do everything we do. Right, and so we talked about last week, but we've really been talking about for several weeks, right? Because he's trying to show, you know, his first closest 12 friends and followers, the apostles, he's, he's trying to help them see this, and they're struggling to see it. And, and I just feel like I struggle to see it as well. This idea that true greatness is revealed through what we do, it, it's not going to be achieved by what we do. And so when we think about what does it mean to belong to a kingdom where greatness is given, it's not accomplished, that's, that's got to change the way we treat one another. It's got to change the way we relate to one another within, within church, but not only when we're at church. And you can tell you've been around people who don't need to prove how great they are. And you, you've been changed by the example that, that people who could demand special treatment, people who could say, you know, well, I don't, I don't really have to do that. There's other people that are going to serve in that way. And there's other people that are going to have to kind of be in a, a position that, you know, I used to do those things, but I've kind of, I've been promoted out of the ministry of, you know, setting up tables and chairs and tearing them down after the event's over. That, somebody else does that. I don't do that. Or uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just stick to the things that I like to do. I'm not going to do the things that, that just don't have any spotlight on them and don't have you know, any, any real uh, acclaim that comes with them. I'm just, I'm over those things, right? Other people are, are, are supposed to be doing those things. I, I wish I could tell you that once we see this truth, we stop relating this way. But my experience is that even within the community of Jesus, even within church, we can try to use church itself as a place where we use other people to feel more important. And when we do that at church, we are damaging not only our relationships at church, but I believe we're damaging the church's witness to the watching world. Because if you have to compete even here, if, if you have to try to say, well, it's not your turn, I want to be the one who gets focused on in this moment. It's, if, if there can't be a place in a, in a world that's full of people constantly doing whatever they can to get ahead, if there is no shelter from that storm, if the church can't be that place, then I, I'm not sure how effective the church can be in getting the world's attention. But if we can be a place where you understand 
because of your relationship with God and because of your relationship with us, that you understand as a foundation that you are worth the life of God's own son. And then you could live out of that confidence. It would, it would catch everybody's attention if we could be a community of people who, who understand that. And instead of trying to Instead of me trying to use you to make me feel more important, I'm constantly just trying to help you experience maybe a greatness that God has blessed you with that, that you've forgotten or that you don't, know, you don't know what's there, right? That's the way of the kingdom. So Jesus, he doesn't just have disciples who aren't understanding him. He's got other outside people who aren't understanding him, and they're threatened by him because they have actually fallen into the trap of using religious community and, and their place in it. They're trying to use that to make themselves feel important or to prove their own importance, right? We're talking about the, the leading religious people that are around Jesus, whose primary interaction with him throughout the Gospel of Mark is to fight and argue and debate, and that's exactly where we're going to find Jesus this morning. He's had to answer a couple of different questions that don't feel like they're asked in good faith. But he does such a good job of interacting with, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees that a teacher of the law, who, by the way, as a group, don't, they don't, we have no evidence that they're any different than the Pharisees and the Sadducees when it comes to trusting that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's trustworthy, right? They, they, they struggle just like everybody else in the first century who are religious leaders for the Jewish people. They feel like they know better than he does. But we're going to come across a unique teacher of the law this morning who doesn't seem to be asking a question that's a trap for Jesus. It's that he's been impressed enough with how Jesus has handled those trick questions that he's going to ask a real question. So open up your Bibles, if you, if you have one, to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to read these verses together. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, and noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this is not a random question. This was a common debate, religious debate, during Jesus' time, okay, as, as a brief reminder to you. In the first century, Jewish leaders basically taught everybody, if you read the Old Testament carefully, you're going to find 613 commands. 248 positive commands, 365 negative commands. Okay? And this was a common question to ask wise teachers because nobody can actually memorize 613 thou shalts and thou shalt nots and have it at ready recollection at all times. Right? You, you just can't do it. So you, you need to have somebody who can say, okay, if you're going to boil it all down, if you're going to say, is there a center of the center, what matters most? And so he asks Jesus this familiar question that they have heard other rabbis answer before. Okay, so Jesus decides he's going to go ahead and play by this guy's rules. So he weighs in on the debate. He says in verse 29, the most important one is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Now, when you think about somebody just asking, okay, of 613 commandments, what do I really need to hold on to? This is, these are not unexpected answers. And I think one of the things that's most difficult for us is you don't have to have gone to church very, very much. You don't have to, to be around Christians very much to hear somebody talk about the greatest commands. I think the danger with this text is it's like, I got it. I understand it. It's not about our intellectual understanding. Okay? It's, it's about something deeper that Jesus is connecting here. And this teacher of the law knows it, right? So he says, well said. You are right in saying that God is one and that there's no, no one, no other but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, that last sentence is kind of funny to me because this is the only teacher of the law in, the, in, in all four Gospels that agrees with Jesus about anything. And I think part of the reason they're done asking him questions is they don't want to agree with Jesus. They're fine if they're debating him and they start out on two different sides and Jesus gives them an answer and they're still on the two sides that they were on to begin with. But this guy is convinced. And so the other people standing around are like, I'm, I, I don't want to do that publicly. I don't want to agree with him. So let's not ask him any more questions. Now, if you're reading in context, Jesus keeps talking anyway. But nobody else wants to actually challenge him. Okay. You know the content, right? I'm not covering any new ground here, and so I'm not going to belabor the point. The first thing I want you to know is Jesus doesn't create the, the two sides of the greatest command out of thin air. He uncovers it out of, out of Scripture. The reason I want that to be clear to you, and, and so real quickly, just to, to set you straight on it in case you want to know. So, the first part of the command comes from Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. It's one of the most important sections of Scripture to the Jewish faith. It's, it's a daily prayer. Love, love the Lord your God with all of who you are, right? Listen to God. Do what you can to, to follow the, the commands of God. Uh, and then... When he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's reaching to Leviticus 19.18. Okay? And the reason I, I want to say that is this wisdom was all, always in Scripture. Jesus isn't, isn't telling them something that they didn't already have a pathway to find themselves as they search scripture. And I think that's really important for two reasons. One, because 
I think it helps, it helps make us aware of the ways that we miss, we, we could dedicate our lives to reading scripture and miss the heart of what God wants us to see and hear. If they could do it, we could do it. And in some ways, I think we need to assume we are doing it. Right? So it's there. It's not a, it's not a twist. It's not, a, it's not something that they would say, well, how would we ever understand that? Right? Jesus is saying, okay, it's the, the raw ingredients for what matters most. It's always been there. The, the other thing that I think is important is Jesus regularly has these moments where he models a relationship to Scripture that I think we might be tempted to think only Jesus can do. But Jesus treats the people he's talking with like he, he wished they had already gotten there themselves. That they shouldn't have needed him to point out that what matters most is to love God with everything we have and to treat other people the way we want to be treated. Right? This is not supposed to be revolutionary. It's also not supposed to take some special degree of revelation to get there. And, and I want to be real clear about this because I grew up in our tradition, the, the tradition of the churches of Christ. And I, I have my entire life, I've primarily seen Scripture as the limit. It's like the guardrails. And I don't want to get outside of Scripture in any way. Okay, but Jesus models and has this expectation that Scripture, it's not the limits, it's, it's where we launch from. In some ways, it's not the end point, it's the beginning point. And what Jesus basically models time and again is, you can always find places in Scripture that will seemingly justify your rejection of other people your judgment of other people, your condemnation of other people. You can always find verses that seem to say it's okay to do this or stories of characters in the Bible. And you say, well, look, you know, Paul called Peter out in front of everybody in Galatians, so if I don't like what Emerson's saying, I'm going to call him out in front of everybody. And Jesus says, yeah, but you're better than that. You're better than going to the places in Scripture that justify your rejection or your condemnation or your mistreatment of other people. Look for the places in Scripture that call you to something better. Okay, When this teacher of the law says to Jesus, you're right, he actually applies it in a way that's beyond what Jesus says. Jesus simply says, love God with, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. And the guy says, you're right, Treating people that way is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Right? So the guy understands where Jesus is going. And he understands that the temptation for us, for people of faith, is to pursue our devotion and our love of God while we also build arguments from God's word that would allow us to maintain relational either distance or judgment on other people who don't agree with us, who don't live like us, who don't see things the way we do. And this guy understands that even if you could memorize all 613 thou shalts and thou shalt nots, and you could try to live them out, if you were not kind and good and patient and understanding to the people around you, it's all for nothing. 
if the religious leaders in Jesus' time could misunderstand that, brothers and sisters, we can still run the risk of misunderstanding it. And we can start to say that there are things that matter more than love. And Jesus reminds us time and again that nothing can matter more than love. Now, what do we mean by love, right? Like, what, what are we talking about? Well, the first thing that I, th- I think we have to understand is Jesus, and, and you can tell the grammar is straining. Is it two commandments or one? Yeah, right? G- Jesus says, yeah, they're together. And so we have to understand, right, that the, the greatest command calls us to cultivate one love that moves in two directions at the same time. It can't be one or the other. It has to be both always. Now, I, I didn't say it moves in two totally different directions because I actually think it's on, it's on parallel tracks that the more we draw close to the heart of God, the more we're naturally going to become people who want to draw, draw close to the, the heart of God's children. It makes sense that, that the more we become like Christ, the more the instinct that Jesus lives with to just always close that distance, to, to find a way to help people belong, to, to find a way to be there for people, that we're going to start to resemble that in our relationships with the people around us. Here's the tricky thing for all of us. It is always easier to love a perfect God than it is to put up with imperfect people. It's easier to love our Heavenly Father than it is to love His sons and daughters who happen to annoy us quite often. Now, we could just stop and say, well, there's people at church that annoy me, and there's people at church that annoy you. I I get that, but it's got to be bigger than just whether or not we have some people within our our community of faith that we might struggle to relate to. It's It's everyone. And, and once we start to, to make the horizon everyone, then we have to start to wrestle with who are the people that you not only aren't sure about, but you're pretty certain that you need to do everything you can to attack them or condemn them or pass judgment on them or reject them, right? We all have people whose lifestyles or behaviors or, or approach to, to how they're going to move through the world it makes us so frustrated or so angry or so afraid that we start to justify how we're rejecting those people. And, and here's what's so difficult about that. Every human being is created in the image of God. Now sometimes they don't know it and sometimes it's harder for us to see it. But every single person is created in the image of God. And so when we reject them, we cannot avoid also rejecting God. Did you hear me? I did not say God's rejecting us. When we distance ourselves from a child of God for whatever reason, we are distancing ourselves from some aspect of God. And I am convinced we are breaking God's heart in, in the ways that we come up with fine-sounding arguments, as Jesus says in another place. We come up with fine-sounding arguments for why 
we can either completely cut someone out of our lives or we can do everything in our power to make it harder for them to move through life. I cannot love God with all of who I am when I am at the same time not loving you. When I come up with arguments, right, and I say, well, I have a quiet time and I pray and I read the Bible, you know what? There's a reason for quiet time and prayer and reading the Bible, and it's not to be really good at quiet time and prayer and reading the Bible. It's to become more and more like Jesus in all of our relationships. The reminder of the, of the greatest commands is that if you have to choose, and by the way, Jesus could have said to the guy, I'm not going to choose, but Jesus knows we all have moments in our life where, where situations are complicated enough where we're going to have to boil it down to what matters most, right? And he says, how you treat people in relationship, how you treat God in your relationship with God matters more than, than all the other things that you might focus on trying to do. It's always going to be easier to know passages of Scripture than it is to actually be like Jesus and how we treat each other. And it's not a matter of content. And we can keep telling ourselves that we're going to keep going back. The Bible is not supposed to be the thing we know really well without being shaped more and more into someone whose heart cares about the, the same things that God's heart cares about, the, the people that God cares about. We have to find ways to tell the truth. If you have a, a place in your heart that you have walled off, if you're nursing a grudge this morning, that's the part of your heart that you're not allowing God's grace into. Which means you're the one deciding how much of your heart, soul, mind, and strength God's love gets to invade. And we're supposed to be the people, if we're saying we're disciples of Jesus, we're, we're followers of Jesus, we're supposed to be finding ways to knock all those walls in our hearts down so that we can become more and more, all the time, people who resemble Jesus, who remind other people of the way Jesus listened and talked and had patience and showed kindness when he didn't have to. We know this is true, but I think at times we, we come up with excuses. I only really love you if I'm good to you when you're at your worst. That's, that's what I want to just boil it down to. Jesus says it in different ways, but basically he comes to say, don't brag to me that you're good to people when they're at their best. That doesn't take anything. Do you love people when they're at their worst? Do you love them in their hardest moments, right, when they're going through the worst? But it's, it's also just as true to say, do you love people when they have the worst possible opinion you could imagine? Right? When, when they have the, the worst approach to life that, that you could come up with. When they keep making decisions that you would say, I thought you made the worst decision you'd ever made and you, you found a new way to make an even worse decision. Are we going to be good to people then? Now, when I say good to people, I don't mean nice. I don't mean that we don't say anything that might make them uncomfortable. 
I mean, when we confront them, we confront them for them, not to justify ourselves or prove that we're, we're right. That when we find a way to, to call them to something more, it's truly out of concern for them. It's not because they make us uncomfortable or they make us feel threatened or, or we think that it's our job to set people straight. I wanna make this, this clear. I love you when I'm good to you. Loving you isn't permission to be vicious and trying to make you good. Right? Like, I think sometimes we lose our way as God's people because we think it's our job to force everybody to be good the way we want them to be good. That's, that's not love. Love is me sharing the goodness that God is working in my life with you and trusting that when people get to experience goodness, it changes them. But I want to remind you, when the Apostle Paul is talking about love in 1 Corinthians 13, do you remember the very first thing he says about love? We say it together. Love is. Okay, don't move past that one until you get good at it. Love is patient. I don't know how long I'm going to have to share God's goodness with you for that good to start working on you, right? For that grace to start seeping into your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I have to trust that it will. It's not my job to set some sort of timer and say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna let you be around me for this long, and then if you don't get it, if you don't pull your life together, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna move on to somebody else. No. What does it mean for me to continue to try to be good to you, to speak to the truth to you in love, to to have compassion for you when maybe nobody else does. I, I'm convinced, brothers and sisters, if the church could be a place where no matter how bad you feel, when you come in here, we help you experience the goodness of God, that's who we're supposed to be. That's what we're supposed to be about. And I think too often we get distracted and we focus on debates, theological debates, doctrinal arguments and we start to think churches about thinking the right things or thinking all the same things in the same way and Jesus says yeah but how much are you allowing the unconditional love of God to turn you into someone who loves unconditionally show me that this is the end of the passage right where he says to the guy you're not far from the kingdom and I think the reason Jesus says you're not far from the kingdom is because he knows the temptation of having theological conversations or doctrinal debates and, and leaving things at the level of intellectual agreement. Okay, but the kingdom of God is not about knowing certain ideas. It's about living a certain way. It's not a matter of who wins the argument. It's a matter of who is actually trusting that the way Jesus treats people is more effective at changing them and transforming them than so many of the approaches that we tend to take. Right? The, the kingdom of God is not a matter of knowing ideas. It's a matter of living. Right, let's, let's bring up that last slide. I've tried to say it twice and I couldn't get there. Sorry. Right? And, I, and I think we, we know this intuitively, but... And I've had this conversation with so many people in this room, right? It's easy to see how somebody else talks better than they live. 
or, or has perspectives that, that are far more impressive than their behavior. But it does, it does us no good to pass that kind of judgment on other people and not wrestle with ourselves. What's the gap between what I say matters to me and how somebody else who's watching me live, what they would say truly matters to me? There's a gap for all of us. And God's grace allows us to grow beyond the place we are right now without feeling overwhelmed with shame or embarrassment, it, you, you should feel no shame or embarrassment for confessing that you're not yet enough like Jesus. Church should be the place where we can say that trusting that God loves us anyway and everybody around here is going to try to love us anyway. But if we don't trust God's grace enough to tell that truth, then we start lying to ourselves and we start lying to one another or we act like as long as we think the right things and we know the right passages and we go to the the church with the right denominational sign out front, I mean, I could keep going, right? We start to focus on the wrong things because they're partial. They're less important They're easier than, at the end of the day, saying, has my relationship with God, that unconditional love of God, has it actually changed me measurably from who I used to be to who I am right now and to who I hope to be in the future? I hear people say all the time, some version of this, I already feel bad about myself. Why would I go to church? I'm just going to feel worse. That's a tragedy for church to be the place where you have to have it all together and you have to to be able to trick all of us into thinking that you don't have any struggles and that you don't have any shortcomings and that the reason you're here is because your life is cleaned up enough and and you're good enough at following the 613 thou shouts and thou shalt nots to have a a, a chair here, a, a place at the table. I don't understand why I'm so tempted to be better at religion than I am at relating. But it's all about how we treat each other. And whether or not the way we're treating each other mirrors the way God is always treating us. And brothers and sisters, I am concerned, I'm more concerned than I've been in my entire life that more than anything else, what the world feels in relationship to the church is judged and condemned and attacked. And what I want the world to feel is loved and welcomed and invited. And then we love them with patience We're good to them with patience. And we trust that they're going to learn who Jesus can help them be by watching us. Because it's it's never just people who give their lives to full-time ministry whose lives are witnessed. Your life is being witnessed. Your life is being watched. I, I can't bring myself to act young enough to get on Be Real. 
Okay, I've been on Be Real on accident a couple times on some of your accounts because I'm with you when you have to take your picture. Your life is being witnessed. And what the world doesn't need is some religious version of who you are. They need the real version of who you are. And it should remind them of just how much they matter. That's what matters most. is helping people experience through us how much they matter to God. And because of that, how much they matter to me. How much they matter to you. If church was a place you felt like you just knew with every relationship here that you mattered. I feel like we'd be a church that doesn't just talk about Jesus but actually shares him. We have to trust that it's relationship that's the most important thing. This guy, you know why he's not in the kingdom at the end of the story? Because instead of following Jesus, he just agrees with him. (laughs) That's why he's near the kingdom. I assume that most of you in this room think you agree with Jesus. That's great. Are you following him? I don't want to be a theologian. I want to be a disciple. I don't want want to be a Bible class teacher, Robert, whether I use flannel graph or not. I don't want to be a Bible class teacher as much as I want to be somebody who helps people fall in love with Jesus because of my loving relationship with Jesus. We make this harder than it has to be by focusing in a ton of different directions because deep down I think we know it's easier to agree with Christ than be like him. Jesus believes you can be like him, for real. You can be like him, not perfectly but faithfully. And if we could find a way to have the courage to trust it and try it, I think our minds would be blown by what God can accomplish through us. We need to find a way to keep being good to people at their worst. We need to be good to people when we think they're the worst. And see what God can do through that trust and through that grace. We're going to sing together now. And as we do, our shepherds and their their wives will be standing at these three main uh, exits and entrances. The, The door's there. They're there to talk with you. They're there to pray with you. So if you came this morning with any concern, uh, with any burden, if you just want to know more about our church family, if you want to know more about what it means to actually become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, please go to those couples as together we stand.